This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. And this time of year is when entertaining is important and you want to put your best foot forward. Well, maybe not foot, but you want to put your best table forward and everything involved with making it a great experience at your home. And Zupan's is a fantastic place to get ideas and also procure what can make your table look better and make you feel better about yourself and your family. For instance, I like to go through Zupan's and take a look at uh, some of their dinnerware that they have. I have some of it at my home. And also, I've noticed some beautiful napkins and tablecloths that they have. Now, these are not inexpensive because you get what you pay for, but they are absolutely beautiful. And if you're looking to make your table look beautiful, there are some great ideas that you can generate at Zupan's. Just go down there. Um, maybe even a gift for the holidays as well. They also have really nice dinnerware. They've got cookware from Staub. They, uh, I know that I think we got our Finex cookware there, Court. Um, it's a great spot for, for ideas. So not only can you get food, you can, you can procure some beautiful things to prepare it in and serve it in. Yeah, we've long talked about uh, the great gift ideas that can come out of your local zoo band. So take advantage of that this holiday season. And speaking of holiday seasons and feasting, Chris, we should point out that this weekend is your last chance to get an order in for that uh, Thanksgiving Day feast. So you got to reserve by Sunday, November 20th. Uh, We recommend you do that reservation either uh, on the website, zoopans.com, or at your local Zoopans. But uh, Make the holidays, make Thanksgiving next week easier for yourself by letting Zupans do a lot of the hard lifting for you. Uh, great selection of organic turkeys, free-range turkeys, and then all those great sides. I do know this. You can often order you know, the full uh, meal, which, again, you have to do that by this weekend. But you know, if you don't get around to that and you just need some extra sides, stop into your local Zupans next week and grab that mashed potatoes that you don't want to mash yourself or maybe some stuffing. They'll have that in the to-go area of your local Zupans. And, yeah, some veggies that are really delicious that you may just want to add to what you're doing. So yeah, there are so many things that can make your holidays even better at Zupans. And you can do that at any one of three locations, Court. Where would those be? It would be West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. And you can also see what's going on and order at Zupans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It is Portland's Food Scene Podcast right at the fork with your host, Chris Angeles, Portland Food Adventures, and I'm co-host sitting in my kitchen near a warm fire, Court Johnson. Oh, that's nice of you. Well, last week when we recorded, I was freezing because my heat was off in my house. Mm -hmm. It's kind of back. It just, there was no repair made, but I have radiant floors and the furnace is such that it takes a while, and there's some other factors involved. But anyway, I'm comfortable. I'm looking at a nice sunny day out at the Pacific Ocean. So, very nice. Uh, I think we're both in pretty good shape, Court. Yeah, you got the wind blowing out in the on the coast because today it's pretty windy. I see the leaves on the trees doing a little bit of something. Yes, and it's right. usually that doesn't kick in till about an hour from now. So it's probably going to be a pretty windy day here. 
Yeah, we've uh, we've got a, a big chunk of green space behind our house, and so uh, when the wind blows, some of these old trees behind us, at least one of them is going to fall. I'm just hoping it doesn't fall onto the fence or onto the deck. Yeah, well, let's hope that that does not happen. But didn't we long ago say we weren't going to be doing weather reports on the podcast? Oh, this is this is weather adjacent. I'm, I'm I'm talking more about destruction to my house and property. Yes, Chris. Well, that's true. That's not that's, <laughs> it's not weather related. That's that that is something else, and sure. it's a it has to do with the voting machines. There we go. Right. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah. Right. They're faulty. So let me give a little. As long as we're talking about weather. Let's give a little tease to at least what we t- intend to do next week, which is I thought it would be fun to do a Court and Chris's gift guide for the holidays on the podcast. Basically, things we just like and love and suggestions yeah. that people may not be aware of. Some of them Portland food related, some of them not. And the one that I am um, thinking about is my little thing. I'll mention it next week, but... It's flat. It it just cycles through. I've got the Manzanita tides on there. I have sunset and sunrise. I have the time. I have, if you want, you can have blazer scores, the whole thing. And it's called a tidbit, T-I-D-B-Y-T. And it kind of, you look at it and think, why do I need that? But it's pretty cool. And um, it's just a little square box that cycles. You can program it to do whatever you want to do. And a lot of weather-related things. You can see radar. And uh, you don't have to pick up your phone to look at stuff. I actually know what's going on with the dollar versus the euro every day. I used to log in every three months to see what's happening. It's relevant to my trips that we do to Spain and Italy, if anybody's interested. Sure. Yeah. Uh, at PortlandFoodAdventures.com. We have trips that for next fall available and a couple of spots to spring to Basque Country with Ordinetta. Okay, that being said, so we plan on doing that next week. I hope we do, Court. Oh, we're, we're doing it. I Actually, just as you were talking just now, I thought to myself, oh, actually, I have a very good one that I will lead off with next week. Um, I'm sure uh, you do. Yeah. I have a list that I'm going to have to keep it brief because I got a lot of stuff that, you know, things we, we use that people may or may not be familiar with. So, sure. Yeah. Or things that we like. So I got, a, mm-hmm. I got a bunch of those, and some of them have nothing to do with Portland or nothing to do with food. They are just may, might have to do with travel, that sort of thing. So Sure. So And, Chris, before we move on, we should also point out that we're giving people a little bit of, of homework or an assignment that they can participate in next week's episode, right? Right. Send us your ideas. Specifically, I would say if any listeners have any Portland things, because we can't be aware of everything, Court. We're probably aware of 1% of what's available. Right. Like, I love the Steelport knives and, you know, the Finex cookware, and there are a lot of other, you know, salt uh, going to the meadow that I always suggest. But we can't know everything. So if anybody has any uh, suggestions, please send it to us at writeatthefork at gmail.com or you can find us on uh, Instagram as Food Podcast PDX and write us there as well. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit today. <laughs> Two hours ago, I was like, I don't want to talk about this. But once my friend Food Dude chimed in this morning and posted, did a post on Facebook copying Michael Zussman's Willamette Week 
review of Khan that came out yesterday, the day before Esquire named Khan the number one new restaurant in America, which our friend Gary the Foodie pointed out to me. I'll point it out on Instagram, not just to me. This morning, well, Michael Zussman, whom I haven't really spoken with in a few years, he used to be, he used to appear with us on the podcast, doesn't want to anymore for whatever reason. I'll find out because I contacted him yesterday. He posted a pretty negative review on Khan. And, uh, and part of the reason which I don't think anybody, even Gregory, would disagree with is the hype for Khan has been extremely off the charts, primarily, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, Court, but by pr- primarily because for he's been working on that restaurant for a few years since his uh, Top Chef appearance, in which he did, you know, when they had that, you know, build a restaurant episode, mm-hmm. that was Khan. And that yeah. was, what, four years ago, maybe? I'm going to say maybe even five, four. No, it was four, at least, or maybe less. Oh, it, it's been, you know, I, I was thinking my, myself, Chris, about the whole timeline of this, because the last time, and it's been a while since we had Gregory on on the podcast, um, he was talking about, you know, he was in the beginning stages of kind of, kind of putting, putting this all together. And then I, I believe it was in 2019, where he officially departed departure, his departure from departure. Um, right. So he could launch, the, launch the, you know, the restaurant. And then of course, the the pandemic hit and I'm sure that delayed it significantly. So there's been a lot of buildup to, to, to con opening up this year. Right. So it was, I think it was 2018. And the reason I know that is because, um, I was with Renee at the time and her son-in-law's brother is Brian Malarkey, who was Gregory's front of the house guy on top chef when they introduced the concept of Khan to the world. And that was the world, right? It's a little different to introduce it to Portland. That was everybody. So I remember, so it was 2018 or early 19 that that happened. And then Gregory did his pop-ups outside of Mama Bird for a couple of years. And um, I went to one of those, and it was good. I don't remember freaking out over it. But it was it was very good, and you know you wanted to go because everybody was talking about it. And speaking of everybody talking about it, now he's opened up his restaurant in Southeast Portland, Con, and oh my God, everybody since it opened, I think in August, August or September, everybody had been telling me you got to go; it's the best thing ever. And I didn't. That's not surprising from Gregory. He's a very talented chef. I, you know, you lo- you gotta love him. There's nothing not to love about Gregory, I think. And um, so, and of course, we all know you can't get reservations. It's hard. You can get them. So I found a way, which was to log in on the day. And by the time I had my eight o'clock reservation put aside for, I think it was October, right? Late October. Uh, in September, might have been September, or yes. Um, and I went to get my credit card. That 8 o'clock reservation was gone, so we were stuck with 9.30 or something. Um, so I got a table for four, thinking I'd invite two other people. And so we were there. Uh, we had it. And along the way, my, our dining companions told us they'd already been there, and we were going to love it more than anything. Well, anyway, long story short, Zussman's review comes out yesterday. And I have to say, while all the social media 
responses to it are absolutely to the contrary of his review. I kind of agreed with it. Um, and but let me just say something. Let me preface that by saying I'm not a critic and I never want to be a critic. And I totally realize that criticism, food criticism is bizarre because everybody's palate is different. So for someone to write that something is great or it sucks, I don't know if my palate aligns with theirs, right? Uh, you and I probably have different palates. So um, I guess a food critic should realize that and come at it from a different perspective, but I don't. So I never want to put my opinion out there. I'll put an opinion out when I think something is fantastic and it's great. I'll tell people they should go. However, when I don't like something, I generally keep my mouth shut on social media. I'll mention it to friends, which I had done with Khan. Now, it's not that I hated it. I didn't like it, but there was when the server came at the end of the meal and asked us what were your, she asked everybody what their favorite dishes were, and there were uh, I had the time that it takes for the three my three other dining companions to come up with their responses. Renee mentions the salad, and I can't think of what my favorite dish was after we just finished eating. There was nothing there that resonated with me to even say, I can't decide between this and this. However, I had also been to Canard that day, um, earlier that day, and I loved it. So the only thing I could come up with was the shrimp wraps or the uh, beet JoJo's at Canard. And <laughs> that was my favorite dish of the day, but it didn't happen to be at Con. So... I don't know if anybody's read Michael Zussman's review, or some people probably don't want to read it. But there were some issues, and I, th I think I've heard it voiced from a few people with noise in the restaurant. I'll say this. I wanted to like it. I, I expected that I was going to love it. I walked into the door and saw the space and thought, oh, here it is. It was a little bit like Oz to me. It was beautiful and really nicely done. They led us to our table. I think... Khan, without question, has some of the nicest silverware and comfortable seats. And I was going to mention in the same breath, the dinnerware, the plates, the plating, everything was gorgeous. So my first impression was this is great, except for the fact that I can't hear anybody talking at the table. Now I'm older. So, you know, there's that issue. And I worked at the Whiskey A Go Go when I was 19. So my hearing, my ambient noise in a restaurant has always been a little bit of a problem. I couldn't hear anything. So, uh, amongst four people. Still with me, Court? I'm still with you. Yep, <laughs> following along. Do you think everybody else might be? No, I'm, I, no, I'm with you. I, I, I mean, I, I think what's, what's appreciated is because um, you obviously have the people who have been talking positively about it, and it's—I I think it's too expected that that uh, something is not going to please everyone. So, and I and I think the Zussman review was kind of the first first one that we that anybody has seen that was a negative reflection of what what was going on there, and so, um, I you know. I, I take the approach, which is why it's kind of to your point of like food reviewing in, in a modern age where anybody can kind of go somewhere and leave a review and there's aggregate sites for it. Um, you can kind oh, of look God. at the, the full story, which again is, is its own little thing because most people just go and complain about some of the lamest things. But 
and we we actually just recently talked about this whether you know whether negative reviews on those sites is is positive to your point of if you if you had a negative experience um maybe that's something you keep to yourself and and the the business itself as opposed to uh you know yeah i every, like to write about it write somebody if i if yeah. it's really something that's egregious yeah. nothing was egregious that i mean i it was for me it was like oh it's okay yeah. But yeah. it was hard to get a reservation, and it wasn't cheap. Yeah. So there's always I think that it, fact. But I think it's fair. It's it's fair. It's fair to say, uh, no restaurant is going to win everybody over. To your point, everybody's palates are completely different, and and you know, and everybody's experience. And what and what we're now seeing is that Zussman isn't the only one. Right. So I thought that yesterday, and then I saw Food Dude, who I take. I, listen, you can have your opinion on Michael Zussman's reviews. That is, you know, he's written, he's traveled the world. He's got a good perspective, I think. Um, but Food Dude was the guy who got me going in the Portland food world reading his reviews years ago. And I, so I respect his opinion. And he wouldn't write a review until he went somewhere 10 times. That's the other factor for me is I've only been there once. And right. I, we didn't order the duck. I wanted to order the duck. So... My impression may have been different if we ordered different things on the menu, so I, I recognize that. But my, the issue, the reason I bring this up this morning is I wonder how much of the hype is what drives people to say, to think and say they loved everything about it. It was the best thing ever. And... Um, and how much Gregory being such a great guy drives that too? Because whoever wants to say anything negative about sure. him, so that's this the issue for me is how much how much is hype driven and how much is real? You know, are people actually judging it based on? And now we're seeing Esquire just named it number one new restaurant in the country. I mean, uh, I guess they've been there. Are they are they going on what they see written on Eater and and in social media? Who knows, right? But um, you know they came out. Someone uh, was, I can't remember who it was came out with a oh the New York Times. That's easy to remember. Top fifty new restaurants in uh, the United States. Khan was on there, and I don't know the facts, but I don't think it was open very long. That reminds me of Renata back in the days where Oregonian named it restaurant of the year four days after it opened or something close to that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, how do you do that? So I think there's, there's a certain amount of hype involved in all of that. However, you know, I can't say I didn't like it. There were some things about it, but honestly, I'm being honest when I, the server asked us all what our favorite dishes was and I were, and I could not think of it right then and there, right when dinner was over with. So um, that's what I thought. And what, so yeah. when I saw Zussman's review, I thought, oh, there's the first time anybody's ever mirrored my, echoed my thoughts on the, the whole experience there. And then, and then Food Dude did this morning. Now we're three old white guys. So what does that say? I don't know. I don't, but maybe I just don't love Haitian food. That's okay. I mean, some people right. like, some people like Mexican, some don't. So, um, however, I think it was one of the prettiest restaurants in Portland I've ever been in. And again, I said, there's a lot that goes into the dining experience for me outside of the food itself. And I think that they, they nailed it on a lot of those issues. They got to work on the sound, 
but in terms of what the table looked like and the experience there, it was great. So, um, but I don't like to go out and say negative things. Part of what I like to do with this podcast and Portland Food Adventures is be a champion of the great things. And I'm not a critic. When someone walks up to me and says, oh, you're a food critic, I get fucking pissed off because I'm not. Um, I just am a, I like to eat like most everyone does. I just happened to, to dial in on it 10 years ago when I thought this was a pretty cool thing about the Portland food scene. And then Portland food adventures happened and then the podcast happened and I, I had nothing, I had nothing going on in my ad agency that was exciting. So this was something fun and there you go. But I'm not, I'm not any more knowledgeable about food than anyone else. I'm less knowledgeable. Actually, I'm not a great cook. Um, so my girlfriend thinks I am, but again, that's the hype. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I I guess the, the big takeaway here, Chris, maybe would be this. If you want to, if you want to know what con is like, try to get reservations and go experience con for yourself and and then make, make your own determination. Forget that now. Well, sure. That's if it was hard a month ago. Oh my God. Now. It's going to be near impossible. And on top of that, you know, we've had Gregory on the podcast twice. I haven't been able to get him to respond to a request to come on the podcast. Knock, knock. If he happens to be listening or someone close to Gregory does, um, we'd love to have him on the podcast again and even discuss this. And I know, I know he'd be happy to discuss it. And my first thought yesterday when I saw this review is, oh, he's going to do fine either way. This right. isn't going to hurt him. Um, it's only created a little bit of a buzz and that's great. And I'm sure he's, I'm sure with the perfectionist that he probably strives to be, he's aware that he could probably do better. I don't know if I would tell him where, but he's, he can't have opened the restaurant in the first two months that I'm perfectly satisfied with it. He has to know that some of the points that people are making might might or might not be true. And the other big thing in Zeusman's review was spice level. And I have to say, uh, I have I'm like at a one or two with spice. I like a little, but not much. And I have the same issues at Longbon. Sometimes things are just so spicy for me that I can't enjoy the dish. Now other people just absolutely love that. I know that. So everything's different. Um, yep. But uh, but we love Gregory, and we're, I am very happy that he's finally got his restaurant open and that it's his. He gets to express himself in ways that he wasn't able to when he was employed at Departure. So um, good for him. He's one of the good guys, man. And he, you know, when I first met him in 2014, I think it was, and we did an event with him at Departure, I will never – I know I mentioned this before – I just thought he was so shy that he wasn't even going to be outgoing at all with our guests at an event, which because it involves chefs talking. And he was great. But when I first met him, I did not have the impression that this guy, if you asked me, was he going to be a TV star? (sighs) There's no way I would have thought he was the guy. So it's awesome that he's made so many strides in his life in terms of addiction and growing through, you know, his experiences at Jean Georges in New York and then Saucebox and then Departure. And he's done really, really well. So I'm talking too much. Damn it. 
No, I don't think it's too much. I, 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 I think that was probably a good way to wrap up the uh, the conversation. <laughs> that, I, yeah. that I think a lot of a lot of people in the Portland food scene, you know, uh, whether they're you know just foodies themselves or if they're you know actually you know restaurant owners or whatever, that everybody's kind of probably talking about this a little bit. So we've addressed it. Right, and I wanted to. I listen. I don't want to just keep quiet on it, but I was not going to go on to everybody's a lot of people were posting michael's review yesterday and saying what do you think about this and then 96 people were right down calling it racist so i didn't want to comment on that but i thought this is our podcast and uh i guess it's a forum to do this during intros and i thought it was a good idea to talk about reviews and hype and social media all put it all together in one big shot so sure um and i absolutely know a lot of people are going to disagree with me but i'm really hopeful that most people would listen and go hey you know what that makes sense he might have a different palette and and um not everybody loves it but i will say from what i see 97 percent of people love it so that's great and that's why you can't get a reservation that's one of the reasons you can't get a reservation yeah, and, and and maybe this would be the way I would I would wrap up at least my my perspective on this because going back to the whole uh, palette, you know, and and how your palette is compared to other people, um, you know, I know in the entertainment world, a lot of people will find a movie critic um, that they gravitate to because they'll see their reviews, go watch the movie themselves, and say, okay, I have those exact same feelings, and then over time they grow in confidence of knowing if a if a if a reviewer is saying this about a movie i will 99% of the time agree with them so i think in that case that might be you know a successful way to to gauge whether michael zussman's review of con would fall in line with yours but it it takes some time and it takes some you going to the actual restaurants yourself right i can't say that about michael i i wouldn't i don't read enough of his reviews honestly yeah. i don't read the willamette week and so unless it comes up on social media i wouldn't know that but i mean your point is true because let's look at politics we tend to look at the people who mirror our views and agree with them we don't want to look at everybody else so when someone says something you think you're automatically predisposed because you know you've been watching them and listening to them and they are going to have your view on something. So you agree and that makes you feel better about yourself too. But I will say to your other point, I've always felt that, uh, and I used to write Food Dude and say, I don't, I don't agree with you on that, but I really read his reviews and that's how I discovered the whole Portland food scene and because I went to the places that he really liked and I loved them and I fell in love with it. So I, that is a perfect example of how that works. So uh, yeah, so when he wrote that this morning, I thought, okay, good. I'm not, I don't think it's great, but it's fine. Doesn't matter. Everybody's got an opinion, but good. Somebody else might agree with me. I'm not nuts. So... I am nuts, but whatever. All right, this episode is with. <laughs> I gotta look it up. Court. Yeah, we we you you had mentioned that you you know we took the time to have this conversation in an intro, and we're finally getting to the intro of a uh, classic episode of Right at the Fork, a new fresh classic episode. Right, it was from September, and I really enjoyed this conversation. It went over in an hour and a half. Or two an hour and a half. So I'm guessing now we're get ready for an hour and forty five minutes, everybody. If you really want to stay tuned, and we hope you do. Yeah. Uh, you've already been into it for too long. Sorry, but thanks. Uh, hope that discussion was worthwhile. But 
number 325 is a is a cl- recent classic of Mariah and Tom Pisha Duffley of Gato Gato and Oma's Takeaway. And uh, they're from, they originated on the East Coast. Uh, actually, they spent time in doing their thing and developing a restaurant concept on the East Coast and came out to Portland. And so a lot of what they said res- resonated with me and some of the things I said resonated with them because we have that common background on on the east coast so um i really enjoyed this interview because of that and because they're great people and i still haven't been to the restaurant they invited me to come i still got to make my way over there so uh, i got a big list for 2023 and i gotta if i knock off 20 of them i'll be happy maybe i'll try to join you on some of those trips chris yeah I, I i need to do a better job well, yeah, but so that would be the reason because I'm no longer just hanging out in Portland and saying, oh, it's Thursday. Where am I going to go? I have to make, not have to, I get to, uh, first world problem. I get to, I make arrangements to go do things either from a business standpoint or socially, and I go. But, you know, unlike the days before when I was 50 pounds heavier, I wasn't sitting around on a day of the week thinking, where am I going to go eat tonight? That is by default generally at home or here on the coast. But if I make arrangements, as I did to go to Cannes, um, that's where I go. And by the way, I've made specific arrangements and done it again to go to Canard uh, in Oregon City, which I absolutely loved. So, um, yeah, you got to do it. And then you find fun experiences and fun things to do. Also went to uh, Takibi. This weekend, they're opening for a lunch, and that place was great, too. It was very interesting. Uh, Chef Cody Auger, um, people may remember him from the old days at Hokusai and also from Nimblefish. There's a recommendation I can positively make, but that's my palate. All right. There we go. So hopefully soon we'll be talking about um, Gato Gato with firsthand and first palate knowledge. Um, but for now, we are speaking with knowledge of them as human beings, and that's what we do on this podcast. So here are Mariah and Tom Pisha Duffley of Gato Gato and Oma's Takeaway. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupans and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupans is the place to find the very best Northwest bounty in Portland, West Burnside, McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupans Markets. Ringside Steakhouse. For over 78 years now, Ringside has been providing the best in steaks and has been the home for the beacon of great hospitality in Portland. Now featuring dining in their updated dining room and al fresco in one of the nicest outdoor dining spaces in the city. Make a reservation today at ringsidesteakhouse.com and while you're there, sign up for their mailing list to be the first to find out about the exciting specials and events going on at Portland's beloved Hallmark restaurant, Ringside Steakhouse. I think we're on. What are we? Ten? We're thirteen yeah. minutes into it, and we and we made a connection. So that's good. 
We did it. I really appreciate it <laughs> because I know you two are very busy, and for you to take both of you to take uh, an hour out of your time is uh, is an honor and a pleasure. So thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Good. Well, I had a nice here. conversation with Mariah yesterday, and I think we covered all the fun stuff. So let's just get to the nitty gritty right now. No, I'm just, oh, I'm just kidding. So um, uh, you two are very, doing very well. You know, you opened before the pandemic. Right before the pandemic, you opened Gato Gato, and um, looks it look. And then during the pandemic, you found another model for a really cool space. As a matter of fact, and so um, you're just you're both rocking it in a period right now where a lot of restaurants are struggling. It's a it's a tough time, and we're going. Correct me if I'm wrong. We're going into usually a tougher period. Well, not so much the next few months, but starting in January, we're going to see people struggling. So, how are you coping with all with labor shortages and um, and everything else going on out there? Hmm. Yeah, I think that we're lucky for sure to have seen some success and to be sort of living this dream that we have and to have these two restaurants. And we know that we are lucky to see the amount of business that we have, but it is still definitely a struggle. Um, staffing has been a struggle for a while. I think we're finally at a good spot right this moment, but I'm sure during this interview that will change in some way and there'll be some other staffing puzzle that we have to manage. Um, so yeah, like the struggle is real. It's still going on. I think for everybody, even restaurants that uh, may be very lucky and successful, um, it's, it's tough out there right well, now. That you make a good point for a restaurant that's, in you know that people are talking about and is mentioned on Eater in a number of ways, um, it's still a struggle. How about the ones, the neighborhood spots? Maybe not even a neighborhood spot that isn't in the same position you're in, and they're dealing with the same things. 100%. So yeah, I mean, what I what I think about sorry, right? What I think about a lot, like industry wide, we've all gone through this moment in time together together separately in a lot of ways, right? Because we're so isolated. And we've all been, we've all dealt with the closings initially, the scramble to try to find funding, try to find a roadmap to deal with something that none of us were particularly trained or ready for beyond the fact that as business owners and sort of hospitality people in general, we have this sort of innate ability to handle these stressful scenarios, right? Like we're always sort of putting out one sort of fire or another. But, um, you know, we all have to deal with these problems. And now we're all dealing with the problems of trying to come out of it the other side and, and figure out um, with, you know, with staffing and, and the costs rising of, of food and, and paper goods and everything that we do in the business and then dealing with inflation and of the political climate during all of this, we're all coming out of this shared trauma of the last like two, three years. And I think a lot about this. And I, and I realize that a lot of what not a ton separates our restaurant from a restaurant that had to shutter its doors. And I think there's a couple factors at play. One certainly is what you're talking about. I mean, we are 
privileged enough to have gotten a certain amount of acclaim and people still are interested in what we're doing. And I feel very fortunate for that. And it's this combination of hard work and luck and right place, right time that I feel very grateful for and fortunate um, for. And also, I think early on, we made some choices that tended, it turned out to be good choices to have made um, for surviving the pandemic at a time when we had no idea if the choices we were making were going to help us or hurt us. I think it, a lot of people, if they're listening to this, who own businesses or work at restaurants, this might resonate where you're trying to stay one step ahead, but are perpetually two or three steps behind the pandemic, the closings, the changing of policies, the changing of public health, your social responsibility, um, and trying to manage all of this while trying to manage um, keeping a business afloat, keeping uh, the livelihoods of your employees forefront in your mind and trying to make sure they have what they need. So, I mean, for us, it, it was so, somewhat of a crapshoot. You just kind of sit down and say, like, what are we going to do? What path are we going to take? These are the options open to us. Do we hunker down, you know, kind of hedge our bets, wait for some assistance or try to hold on to what we have with the hopes of reopening in a couple weeks, a couple months? Who knew it was going to be a couple years? Um, do you, you know, some places immediately closed and said, I don't, I'm not, we're not going to handle this. We're out. And then us, I mean, what we tried to do, we in our conversations, we didn't know better than anyone else what the future is going to hold. And we said, look, what we want to do is get back as soon as possible to just doing what we do, which is trying to stay creative, trying to create jobs for our staff, finding creative ways to like keep cooking, even if it means initially cooking for very few people take out, doing this pop-up OMAs. But... Really what it came down to when you put it in a nutshell is like, let's not allow these outside forces to control us as much as we can. Let's bet on ourselves and still try to be the agents driving what Gato Gato does in and the that, next year. And that ultimately I think that us. requires a thread of passion that you obviously have, right? But there are people you mentioned who just Threw, the, threw in the towel in the beginning. And those could have been folks who'd been in the industry for a long time and it was never that challenging and all these challenges built up and said, well, gee, maybe I can paint for a living. I don't know. It might be a little easier. So, Well, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's that because I don't, I, I don't, it, it's pot, it could be that. I think that I don't want to like take that away from anyone that did close and say, oh, it's because it was too challenging. I, I, this is a challenging business. So I don't think it was necessarily that looking at it like that and saying, oh, I can't handle that. I think look at someone like Ricker. Andy, Andy Ricker from Pockpock. I mean, he saw the way the wind was blowing like pretty early on and things started changing and he just was like, time to, time to fold. You know, like, and, and I don't think it was because he couldn't handle it. I think there are a lot of things personally about the social responsibility of it, as well as, you know, I have all these restaurants. How, is this something that I want to try to manage the financial burden? And he had this out, which is like, I, yeah, no, I, I was going to say that was you his know, out is he had a, a really good option. Right. So, um, and I, th yeah, I think it, it might be less 
it might be actually the some people who closed early kind of they may have just had a little bit maybe they've been open long enough they had some insight that we didn't have or some choice that we didn't have i mean we were only open eight months what else were we gonna do we were all in it got it i mean that came up for me a lot that idea of like what else could i possibly do i have never Mm -hmm. had a job outside of a restaurant it's not like there were restaurants that were looking to hire anyways at that point so and we're a family who both of us own this restaurant together so if we had decided to fold early on our like our options for work and survival were very very limited like that was not a path that we felt was an option so we decided that instead we were going to try to hustle our butts off and we did everything from like a drive-in movie theater to take out to like feeding uh protesters we did so much stuff because we decided that we would try to stay busy and try to find like creative ways to show hospitality from a distance and experience all this isolation but find some comfort in like seeing that one member of your staff who you see every day or whoever that is and that was something that we really needed for a lot of reasons you know, Mariah, it's, it's been so long that I almost forgot about like what what felt like the most important piece to what we were doing is like, you know, you finding a way like the first couple of days of cooking for an empty restaurant when we tried to set it up as like a pandemic restaurant where you're cooking just takeout. It was so eerie and it just felt so soulless and different from what we had been used to that I didn't think I could do it. It just was so odd going in. I mean, you know, you're used to doing prep. No one's in there. It's just you and the team. But it was like me and my and my sous chef. And then we'd start cooking food and tickets would come in. But the, the restaurant was just silent, you know, in this, this big space. And it just felt so isolated and weird. But I think beyond the food, which we still wanted to kind of stay creative and, and do something fun for people. Because people kind of needed that, I think. Is that what Mariah was able to do and what the team in the front of the house was able to do with exactly what you said, like still creating ways and finding ways to put touches on what we did that spoke to our commitment to hospitality and showing people, hey, we're still here and we're still here for you. And like, we're not just going to be, this food's not just going to be showing up on your doorstep. Like, you're going to come and feel a little bit of hospitality when you come pick it up. Whether that's the way Mariah set up the the service windows or just the way that we communicated about what we were doing with people. I think that, more than anything else, is what, like, kept our spirits. Like, I'm not going to say high because there were some fucking low points. But... um but kept us like coming back to it and saying like, okay, like we're on like the path here. Like people are responding to what we're doing. Clearly people are still like interested in what we're doing. Even if what we're doing isn't gato gato anymore, they're responding to, um, they're responding to the energy that we're putting back into it. And, and that started to feel really good. And I think by the time Oma's takeaway, the pop-up that we began in gato gato, started to get traction that became that became like the reason to go in every day 
You know, and that's why we did, like, Mariah and Toby set up this movie screen, and we did these drive-in movie nights with food that Mariah, like, devised this cart to bring to people so we could do distanced food service. And this is back when, like, everyone thought they were going to get COVID through, like, the filaments of their clothing if they, like, drove down the street with someone who had it. You know, it's like no one knew still, like, how this was going down. And those are impossibly unproductive money-wise, but but really fun. And, like, we were able to gauge the community in this fun way. Um, you know, it was such a pain in the ass. But it, was so, but it just, like, spoke to, like, just trying. Like, let's just do it. And um, and I just love. I think this that. is kind of a rhetorical question, but do you think that's like swinging the heavy bat, right? So you hope you don't have to go through something like that again. But the fact that you did, when no one, there was no playbook, as you said, there was no playbook, and there was no way to do it. But you had to dig deep to find different ways to be creative in the hospitality industry. I mean, I was one who was constantly. I guess I was complaining that from my perspective, I wasn't blaming anybody, but from my perspective, picking up food in a box was not what I was really interested in. I mean, that was just the food. I wanted uh, interaction. I wanted an experience at restaurants. So you had that. So has it carried through now to 2022? We're in September where you think it's going to make you even a better better restaurateurs than you were before yes i think for me like a lot of the things that we learned we i mean we apply every single day i'll say personally like that idea of like making hospitality no matter what we set up some crazy weird shit and we were just like unabashedly ourselves and We've always kind of had this motto that, like, we want people to feel like they know us a little bit when they walk into our space. And at the restaurant, a lot of that is reliant on, like, these design choices or the music we choose or all these little ways that we touch the atmosphere before you even get the food. Like, obviously, you're smelling it. You know a little bit what you're in for because maybe you've heard about it. But, like, we give you so many clues about what you're in for before you actually have the experience. So we thought a lot about how to do that with with takeout. We set up this really wacky tent with like a bunch of goofy lights and disco balls and all of this really silly stuff. And I think that like levity and that sense that like we know this is like tacky and silly and we're going to still like do it really earnestly and like make that be our kind of guiding light. Like, that has carried over so much into the personality of Oma's Hideaway, which is a brick-and-mortar restaurant now. But, like, any design choices that I think we would have felt, like, timid or shy about making pre-pandemic, we were able to make really confidently. And I think also, just, like, in life and in work, this really taught us a lot about, like, embracing change. And that change is the only thing you can rely on. It's the only constant. And if you can, like, go with change and try to find a way to find positivity in change and say to yourself, like, okay, things are changing. How do I want them to change? And how can I be part of that process? I think those are questions that we are now, like, very used to asking ourselves. And those questions are really helpful no matter what happens because that change is constant 
and we're always going to be needing to find ways to navigate I think if, any, if we ever knew that, we I mean, know that now, right? Because three years ago, the concept of sure. change was, oh, we have to buy a new house or something like that. Now, this is yeah. upheaval. And uh, you, you've, yeah. done with that, you've done that very nicely. And I, I would just make a comment that what you're talking about and what you created was very important because people were at a point where they just needed it wasn't necessarily only the food they needed some change from their four walls inside their house when they go out i need to feel something we felt that same way we were like we need to like connect with somebody other than each other and like even if we can't see them even if we're like there are walls separating us or whatever i know that like you're hearing that playlist i made when you pick up your food I know that all of the plants from my home that I brought in to decorate this stupid tent that we set up every single day, like all of that is adding to your experience. And like, that's why we get fed by making these connections with our community. That's like why we're in this business. That's the reason we've always been in this business. So still continuing to prioritize those same values, but like finding new ways to execute them was like, that's what kept us going. And Mariah's talking about, like, they set up this really cool takeout area at Gata, which I'm not sure you were ever able to make it to or not. But, I mean, hearing from guests, you know, just their two-minute arrival to pick up their bag that had, like, a drawing on it and their name and a note from us and the food inside and, you know, there's lights and plants and decorations and maybe there's, like, a you know, Dolly Parton in a frame. I mean, it was just it, it, to hear that it lit up people's day and that it gave them a little bit of change, just like you're saying, that was really special to to us. And I think I think that like what Mariah was saying is that Gato Gato, it was our first restaurant that we from like you know soup to nuts had everything to do with. And I think you're in this year long process of the build out, and making all these decisions, and I think you tend to sort of fall back on what you know. And some decisions we made. We're less how we want to be seen and do things and more like, well, how does, how do you do a restaurant? Because when you get nervous, it's like, well, what do you, we have to make this choice. Like what would a, what would a restaurateur do? Like what would a, what would our peers who we look up to do? We, we made a few choices like that that I think we wouldn't do. Um, we're very proud of what Gatto became. I don't think it was at all the restaurant it was we had in our mind or when we opened we went through lots of change because I like to change the menu and the vibe and, you know, not being afraid to do that um, and sort of reimagining what you can do with a space. And if you look at the space of Gato Gato as, you know, this is our restaurant, but what we do in those four walls isn't dictated by the, by the, the times or the, or the guests, we can sort of choose what we want it to be. Um, we allowed it to sort of grow organically and, um, and that definitely led to the way we looked at um, Oma's hideaway when it became a You got a one order. advantage going for you is that you are in Portland, Oregon, where you can do some things that aren't necessarily looked at askew that people would just go, oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Whereas in somewhere else, we're like, what the fuck are they thinking? That's like, yeah. <laughs> totally. Because we were I mean, like, do some weird <laughs> shit here and people are going to show up. Like, that was really exciting yeah. to us. That's one of the reasons we actually ended up moving out here. I mean, we did, you know, we ran some restaurants in, in Maine, but we did our pop-up there and, and we started our pop-up again here in Oregon. Um, 
But that's the appeal of Portland, Oregon. Anyone listening, I mean, you can still come here with an idea, a dream, whether it's a food truck, a pop-up, a dinner series, or a quirky little restaurant, and people are accepting of that. It's much harder now in the bigger cities. And, like, we're, you know, we're still a big, we're a big food city. But anywhere like, you know, L.A., New York, San Francisco, Boston, you know, all these places, Houston, anywhere you go, you need to be, like, so dialed with your concept to succeed right off the bat. There's not, not that these spaces don't exist, but there's much less space for a quirky little idea to turn into a restaurant, to turn into uh, a couple than there are here. Um, And I think that was something that spoke to us about the restaurant scene. Um, And, you know, Oregon's been obviously very, very kind to us in our, in our ideas and in our restaurants. But, you know, something you went back to further, you said, are you prepared now for sort of whatever, now that you've sort of come out the other side? And I would say like real talk, you know, there was, an amount of effort to the hustle, the pivot, whatever, however you want to put it, the dealing with the turnover and all of these people who are working with you or for you, um, your peers as well, your family, everyone is like going through this horrible moment of their lives. Not to mention we have our beautiful two and a half year old. Oh, that too. Just that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just that. And that, um, is that, you know, the reopening of when we opened Oma's in the whiskey soda space, it and then we kind of had to re reconcept it um, as this takeout. It wasn't just it wasn't doing what we wanted. We shut down and really doubled down on ourselves, reinvested and redesigned it, and did another grand reopening. It's very rare you get two chances in the restaurant business because of the pandemic. We got a second chance to kind of be like, this is the dream, and Mariah got to design a dining room. That is awesome. But that final push to get open, for me anyway, was sort of like, that was like all I had for a while. And for about a year after that, I was mostly checked out. My father was sick. Just that pivot, hustle, staying afloat was, it took its toll. So I just, I just want to mention it because I think if people are listening, it's not like we just found this formula that worked and now we're everything is just groovy. I mean, it took its toll and I'm still trying to find my way back to, you know, whatever it is, your, your personal mojo or the inspiration, the, the passion for it. Um, those fires were dampened a little bit. I think this year, as we're talking now, I have sort of a a newer management team and I'm really looking towards the future in this optimistic way that I haven't felt for a couple of years. It was autopilot we got to do this. Let's go all in, you know, the chips are down, however you want to put it. And then off the cliff, because it was like, that's Mm -hmm. all my energy. We we're not going to close. And then it was like, boom, I need space. I can't even handle it. And that took its toll. I think also on the, on the management. And, you know, luckily we had really good management that was able to sort of like keep the ship moving in the, in the right direction. But now I'm, I'm back more mentally i have more space for the creative aspects of it and i'm enjoying it much more and i'm really excited for the next year because as you say like we've dealt with all this and now i want to get back into like loving being at the restaurant and loving cooking food and being with my team and seeing what we can do in a relatively post peak pandemic era 
um, and getting back to not just surviving, but like creating and thriving. I think it's yeah. going to be a fun thing. I don't know if you um, listened to the interview I just did with Gary Okazaki, and we were talking about, mm-hmm. um, you know, a changing of the guard. You know, the Andy Rickers aren't here anymore. The Vitaly mm-hmm. Paley's aren't here anymore. The John Gorham's aren't here anymore. You can go down the list, and I, I'm sorry if I missed anybody, but I asked him who, you know, I mentioned Gregory, and uh, I, sh- I humbly admit I went down, you know, I could come up with about three, and he mentioned you two. He said, no, these two are, you know, some of the new guards. So you get to come back, uh, not come back, but continue on with that's a big thing i think in portland oregon because i think a lot of people through the pandemic when people like andy ricker are closing are thinking what are we gonna where's our where are our anchors you know we've had these anchors for years and Mm. now it's all going to change so that's exciting i would like to come back uh and discuss a little bit about your separate mojos and where they were and how you met and what that did that spark did and how you got to portland but first we need to take a little break here with a a message from ringside we're here with tom and mariah pisha duffley and we'll be right back after this all right chris let's just pause a moment here talk about one of our favorite places to eat ringside steakhouse you know i just had the good fortune to be on the snake river with chef jonathan gill from ringside and uh boy that was fantastic and he served up a little bit of wagyu and some culottes and some incredible corn that's available on their menu as a side dish so that was a lot of fun you can go to uh i think portland food adventures uh instagram and check out a couple of the images from there but i will say the couple of nights before we went my friend and i went to ringside and um i wanted him to enjoy the best steak he's ever had um and we asked chef jonathan to suggest which one of the three options for wagyu steak we should have and there's a um a4 olive-fed um, Wagyu available on their menu. It's, it's a premium price, of course, but it's worth it because it may just be the best steak you've ever had. And, and as I said, Jonathan served some Wagyu on the river, and we had quite a few people who were regular customers of Ringside who said that was, that was the best steak they've ever had. So that's my suggestion. Um, treat yourself to one of the three options on the menu for Wagyu at, at Ringside. Yeah, definitely one of the reasons why Ringside Steakhouse is Portland Steakhouse for over 78 years. And we should mention, you know, they've gone through some different changes over the past couple of years uh, because of the pandemic, but now open seven days a week back to the way it was. And you can get the uh, full list of uh, hours and schedule your next reservation on their website, ringsidesteakhouse.com. Lots of options at ringside. And of course, they've gone out of their way to make sure everything is healthy and uh, air is circulating. And uh, ringside's a great choice. Very nice. So as I mentioned, reservations at ringsidesteakhouse.com or just make it through the Open Table app. Okay. We're back with, I'll I'll, uh, reverse the order, Mariah and Tom, Pisha Duffley. Hi. Um, Hi. And we've been talking about 
really the pandemic restaurant industry and Gato Gato and Almost Takeaway and how that's uh, how those have fared and grown throughout that. I wanted to go back before that and let people uh, give people the opportunity to get to know who you two are. They know your restaurant. Part of this podcast and everything that I've been doing for twelve years has been with the goal in mind of letting people know a little bit more about those people serving their food and making it and who make up this industry. So I don't know where you want to start, but how you two both got interested in food. And then I would like to hear about that. I want to hear the exact moment that you made eye contact. And and maybe like I should do your bio. It's like maybe I do your bio and you try to do my bio and see if it's right. I'm going to tell this story. (laughs) All right. Let let her Uh, go. Let her. I'm I'm looking forward to this. So basically, me and Tom, when we first met, we were teenagers. So this was like, you know, everybody talks about right now, this like teenage dirtbag phase is like the thing. We were real teenage dirtbags when we met. Um, Can you define a dirtbag? What went into your being dirtbags? Oh, God, I got I got some I got some some juicy path we could. Yeah, we could spill some tea on for a long time. Well, no, 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 no. Let's we, do that. Let's we, not we drop that, that cuz we won't come back to that. <laughs> I want to make just we'll come back to we'll come back um, to the path. But let's hear some of the dirtbaggiest things that you both did cuz I love to hear those. Well, I'll I'll quickly go I'll quickly go from when we met in like high school. And where was, was this? Where was this? This is in Cam- okay. Cambridge, Massachusetts. And and so I went off to Vermont and had you know, five, six years in Vermont where I was like following the dead on tour and sort of going to school. I was enrolled in college, I should say. I didn't go to college. And then, you know, I I came back down to Boston with the idea that I was going to start cooking. I had this idea that I was going to start being a cook. And I, I took a job at, you know, literally like, like flipping frozen burgers and hot dogs at this place, Bukowski Tavern, where Mariah worked. And, and so Mariah and I re-met. But so that's sort of like the, sh- the very short trunk. Well, yeah, but she like was going to do that. But, you, we but we need to hear like your dirtbag dirt stories first, and then we get back to Mariah. Well, I'll give a couple. A cup. I'll give a couple. Like, uh, okay, going home in your in your chef whites would be one. Sleeping in your chef whites, then going back to work in your chef whites. I mean, these are things I wouldn't imagine. A professional cook wanting to do now, but those are sort of the realities. Of the I'm looking for things that, that involve cops. <laughs> okay, yeah, there's a few. There I mean, I don't want to. Many things that involve cops. We went to a lot of raves. We definitely partook in some things that are illegal and not not great. Um, we were just we were a little. Punk kids. And how long ago was this? Um, just to give everybody an idea. Years how many? Ago, Twenty-two. You like said. Okay. I think when we met. Um, yeah, we were just like skipping school and doing drugs and partying with our friends and sort of exploring our our teenage self. Our bodies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A lot of creative experimentation. Um, and then, like Tom said, he moved to Vermont. He followed the Grateful Dead around for a while. I stayed in Boston and um, bartended at a, a couple little punk rock dive bars. And uh, one of those dive bars had a sister restaurant that we would go hang out at all the time on our days off. I went to that sister restaurant and I saw Tom there sitting at the bar. And I 
you know, we had been friends when we were teenagers. So I was like, hey, Tom Duffley, what's up? He was like, oh, I'm, I'm flipping burgers here now. I just moved back to Cambridge from Vermont. That's sort of when we reconnected. Um, and at that point, Tom was like, I'm going to be a cook. And I was like, okay, cool. He was flipping frozen. Cigarettes. I think at that point I was like, I'm going to be a chef. I'm going to own And this is, yeah. this is before, this is really idea. before food TV. So you had to, there wasn't that influence. Well, this is like right. right at the cusp, right at the cusp. I mean, I was, I was a little older. I mean, I was, I was like probably 26 or 27 at this point. I had, you know, I was in, I, one point was, you know, studying literature and thought maybe I'd be a lawyer. So I sort of approached food from that side of it, like reading a lot. I was kind of a food nerd um, in my in my downtime. Maybe like, you know, I worked at this place, Bukowski. Like maybe I like fancied myself some sort of like um, drunk savant. Um, but either way, I was working. I was flipping. I was making hot dogs, right? When we met, I wasn't. It, it certainly. Well, I'm going to say also that on the East um, Coast, there was a better idea of good hot dogs than I found out here for the most part. Well, at least we have a. At Don't least we have the split top bun. Don't even get me started on side cut freaking yeah, bread man. buns. Yeah. We, you could do a whole podcast about my disdain for uh, hot dog buns on the West Coast. So, are you saying that you miss anyway. those side cut bread buns, like from Howard Johnson's? No, I miss the I miss the split the split top, which to me is the only thing that makes sense. Where you can griddle the sides, put a hot dog in it. When you get them here, they're side cut. Which makes no sense to me. And then the bread, I mean, go to the store and look at it. It may not make sense because it's probably the only thing you've ever done. Well, no, I, listen, I, you, I, you can't, you can't find split top. Well, I'm a little confused here. in terms like, of, it's in term, it sounds like you're describing what I miss, but the, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call, if I would think of it as split top. I'm talking about lobster rolls on the East Coast where the sides yes. are cut off. Yes. They grill them on the sides and they put the lobster yes. in there and they do hot dogs as well that way. And that's, you know, I, yeah. you don't see that very often. I've seen Rick Jancarelli do that here. And that's about it. That's about yeah. it. Well, because he's, he's well, from, exactly. He's he and I are brethren from Connecticut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes. Oh, you're from yeah. Connecticut, boys. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I love Rick. And then Rick, Rick worked for a long time as a chef at Shelburne. Farm I was going to ask you about that, but I've, and we both I'm, worked for generally I've learned on this podcast, don't ask the question that is might be a no and it goes nowhere so i didn't ask that but but so (laughs) well we he worked for sorry we're no we're not we're fine so timeline um you were in vermont Uh, and you had the opportunity to eat his food there which is kind of cool right i would imagine you maybe ate his food at shelburne farms or you just knew he was there i may have but not have known it you know what i mean i didn't know i certainly right but you ate there you ate until i moved out here but yeah right yeah 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 for sure um and then we both worked for Barbara Lynch for a number of years and may have crossed paths at that point. So it's a, it's a small world. Probably not because he's, and you know, you know, Tommy, he's, he's three or four decades. You know, older than Tommy me, from Pizza Jerk and um, his sandwich place, he's also from Connecticut as well. There's a lot of really cool sure. Connecticut yeah. heritage. And there's a lot of Vermont heritage in Portland. You've got Greg Denton from Ox. You know, there are a few others that, I'm, that aren't coming to mm-hmm. mind, but... Anyway, I'm sorry we digress, uh, yeah, there's a few. but uh, because once you start talking about those buns, then I find I find my way into those buns. So okay, I'm sorry. Let's figure out between the three of us where both of you were. Dirtbag. Okay, so short summary. 
we're like working in little dive bars in Boston, but Tom is like sure he's going to be a chef. And at this point in our lives, we're like throwing these parties that are way above our abilities. We're like, we're going to have a pate and and galette party. And like, we're just having friends over for like a ton of, you know, different meat preparations. We would frequently buy like whole goats and smoke them at midnight in our backyard or we would be like, let's make Scrapple. It's 3 a.m. And we would go to the 24 hour grocery store. There had store to be marijuana involved with all of this. Oh. I think <laughs> marijuana, I think uh, like, you go to the store and buy snacks. I think when you're doing rails of cocaine, you go up and buy Scrapple. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thanks. So, there there we go with some dirt it bags. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, there was a lot of stuff involved. <laughs> Certainly also marijuana. Um, and so, yeah, we were like really just sort of experimenting on our own. Tom ended up really begging his way into a job at this restaurant. Oh, that's fine. I I figured that was your dog. Yes. There was a restaurant next door to the bar that Tom worked at. That was like this Cambridge institution that had been open for a long time, but was like very well respected and just had this really special place in the Cambridge food scene. And Tom would go there probably drunk after work every day and say things like, get to know this face. Cause I'm going to work here. I'm going to work here someday. I'm going to work here someday. He- well, I was really dramatic. I was also kind of a romantic, but we, I drank with their cooks every day and I really looked up to these guys and they were just your, you know, these like hard nosed, Drinkers that would they all had you know, known for hiking and like they, it was yeah brisket and yeah it was kind of like it was kind of like a throwback to like uh, older sort of Anthony Bourdain novels where like you know as an older human now I can take a lot of that with a grain of salt but as a younger man I really like bought into the romantic side of the industry and like all of the toxic things that went in that go into that i was like yes like this is what I, I can i can live this lifestyle and i can cook on the line and get this sort of measure of respect from my coworkers and kind of like the big the you know, big swinging dick kind of machismo that east coast grill really at that time and that like you know in that snapshot of time in cambridge really like i was was the epitome of all of that and i just was i was like totally enamored like i said and i was like this is it this is what i want um you know looking back it is this turn and burn restaurant that certainly des- it deserves like the place it holds in the history of like boston food and chris lessinger um you know will always go down as like one of the 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 most well-known or respected chefs in the history of boston food although his relevance may be like waning um in modern times but anyway this is the restaurant i wanted to work at and oh, i had convinced myself i was going to work there Tom was, like, begging his, he was, like, you know, there every day, committed to, like, trying to get this job. Uh, in a parallel note, on one of our dirtbag nights, Tom broke his thumb and had to get a couple pins put into it. Um, the, a few days after he got these pins put into his hand, he gets the call from East Coast Grill, like, hey, Tom, you know how you've been asking for a job? You want to start tomorrow? Tom's like, yes, I want to start tomorrow. He doesn't really mention the pins in his hand or the cast or anything like that. Basically, I'd like gotten a fight with one of my best friends at the time, and he had like dropped me on my head and twisted my thumb all the way around. <laughs> I went to the hospital, got all these screws. That's very Boston. I had this big cast That's... covering. 
And I, yeah, it really, I mean, much more so than, than out here. And uh, I, I had this full cast on my hand and these pins in my thumb. And I'm like sitting on my parents' couch. This is a dirt bag, right? I moved back from Vermont. I moved in with my mom for, my mom and dad for a month, mm-hmm. quotation marks. I ended up staying there for like two years um, in, my, in my parents' basement. So I'm living in my parents' basement. This happened. I'm on my mom's couch, cast on, pain pills, just kind of doing my thing. And yeah, the chef at the time there, Eric Gaberski, calls me and says, Hey, Tom, you've been harassing me. Someone called out. When can you be here? And I said, you know, tomorrow. Uh, and uh, took some scissors, cut the cast open so I could move my fingers and, uh, and went to work. That's how I got my job. That just goes out of um, Well, I pulled the pin out after work because it, it worked its ooh, way out of my hand after ooh, a few days. Oh, that's painful. And so I pulled the pin out, I think in your bathroom. Yeah. That, at the time. Talk about anyway, swinging the heavy bat. There, that's swinging the heavy bat. Good for you. For- yeah. So that was like Tom's first real restaurant job. Um, shortly after that, I got a job at like a sort of more upscale cocktail bar bartending. And we sort of like started at that point dreaming about what our restaurant would be and at that time it would be like a little charcuterie based dive bar and sort of very like Spanish in its style of service of being like small and intimate and all about these like meats and special drinks and then um we you know worked in and around Boston for a few years like Tom said he worked for the Barbara Lynch Grupo um at Sportello and the butcher shop and drink um and then we decided they to started to kind of polish off some of the rough and rougher edges I mean, we so, so who fell in love with who first or was it just a mutual thing oh, Tom in love with me first. <laughs> <laughs> uh that is likely that is likely true like i said in high school i mean th- three years seems like way like a, a insurmountable at least for me my dirt bag only goes so deep where I'm not going to, I'm not going right. to date Tom's someone three years younger than me when I'm in high school. Years, right. Years but when you get older, those three years become, it becomes trivial. Mm-hmm. Like we all see that. Right. I mean, if you're like, Oh, you married a 33 year old at 30, no one bats an eye. If you're 17 dating a 14 year old. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't on the table, you know, it wasn't even, but, but you know, when we remet, yeah, it was great. There were sparks and we went out, um, and I think initially it was like, yeah, it was good. It was good times. You know what I mean? Like, let's have good times. We, we ran in the same circles and we knew and it was great. And I think it quickly turned into more. And I think both of us were a little like, what the fuck? <laughs> right? Like, this is happening. Yeah. I'm sure Mariah's friends I was were definitely like, like they, were pulling, <laughs> they were pulling her aside and said, listen, this guy pulls, this guy yeah. gets in fights and pulls pins out of his thumbs. <laughs> like, I mean, like, my friends were not scandalized by that. Not to, like, whatever, but you are not the first. They weren't weren't scandalized, but, like, let's just say it wasn't when, especially when people heard that we were getting married. I think there was less support (laughs) than I would have wanted. Yeah. yeah. Um, But anyway, so, yeah, the, the... the polishing began probably <laughs> with, with working for the Grupo. Um, we yeah. ended up uh, getting engaged on Manemsha Beach, where they filmed Jaws on Martha's Vineyard. 
is when I asked Mariah to marry me, and we decided that we needed some new, some new uh, surroundings, and we moved to uh, Portland, Maine. Mostly because I um, went up there for a stage at Hugo's after a meal we had had there, Mariah and I, and we were um, blown away by their charcuterie program. It's yeah, really awesome. creative program. It's a really great hospitality program as well. What was that? We were like? out at a bar one night with Jamie Beastnet, and you were like having this crisis of your career, and you were like, "What should I do?" And Jamie Beastnet, oh yeah, like, you should move. To I Maine. forgot about that. I bet he doesn't remember that either. But that's right. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. So Jamie Beastnet was like, "You should move to Maine and work for Andrew Taylor and learn charcuterie." So we moved to Maine. We had an extra room in our apartment. It became our charcuterie cave. We uh, would have hams hanging and sausages and all sorts of fun stuff kind of going on in Maine. And yeah, we lived there for about five years before we moved out here. And, you know, the before we moved out here, we visited a couple of times. Tom's sister lives out here. I think eating at like Javiel is probably what actually made us decide to move here. That's Um, pretty cool. And... Yeah. I mean, well, let's back back it up a little bit. I mean, when we moved to Maine. I, now that you bring up <laughs> Jamie, and, I, and if you don't know who Jamie Beeson is in the in the food industry in Boston, I'm I've heard of him. Yes, research, but or I've, I've seen him. Um, but what he was getting at, so he had opened Copa, which uh, was you know doing all their in house charcuterie at a really high level. That stuff that had that Boston hadn't really seen um, outside of like these sort of old school like sausage um, restaurants that existed like off on the highway. But he was doing this like really fine dining Spanish style Italian um, charcuterie in this like tapas style that really had caught on. But what Boston was going through at the time that Maine was a few years behind was that uh, the health inspectors were starting to catch on that everyone was doing all these things that they were not, you know, preserving things with salt and fermenting meats. And was like pouring bleach all over Jamie's meats. It was like yeah. late traumatic for chefs yeah they they were shutting people down and and asking everyone to have HACCP plans and this is like when sous vide cooking was hitting it's like zenith and everyone was like oh well this is not you know you're creating these uh you know this these oxygen free atmospheres in which bad bacteria can grow so in boston everyone's cracking down on this but in maine it was still the wild west where we you know uh, and this is the part you said, like, let's not get anyone in trouble. But certain restaurant groups that I am familiar with intimately, you know, we were um, curing our own meats, like in meat caves, in our spare bedrooms, in basements, in secret rooms off of the restaurants. We were like, uh, you know, distilling our own alcohol to make like distilled um distilled like essences of flavors, as well as like maybe some booze for the line cooks. But, you know, all this really creative, deep, deep, deep cookery was happening without being hindered by the necessary oversight of, like, a, a you know, a health authority that's paying attention. So Maine was a Wild West. If you wanted to do really cool charcuterie, if you wanted to be doing deep preservation, like making fish sauce from scratch and, and these sorts of things... Portland, Maine is where it was at. And it had Andrew Taylor, Mike Wiley, and and um, Arlen Smith 
with a restaurant that has a vehicle for all this, which is at the time well, is huge. And I, I have one other question uh, while you're on that, and I just said I don't generally do this, but I'm assuming the answer is going to be yes. Are you familiar with uh, Allison and Matt at Standard Baking in Portland, Maine? Did you know them? Sure. Well, Matt was yeah, one of absolutely. my best friends yeah. growing up in elementary school. So. Oh, wow. So, oh, wow. That's super interesting. I mean, yeah, the circles just get smaller and It smaller was really cool yeah. to find out that's what he ended up doing but yeah we did sleepovers in second grade and then i find out that's what, he, what he's doing <laughs> that's amazing that's yeah. amazing and i think that portland maine has some of that same spirit that we've found here where like people are willing there's it's such a tight restaurant community there because it is such a small city that people are willing to give weird stuff a try so like after working at for this restaurant group for a while and kind of like working around portland maine we started to have sort of another, uh, like Tom was feeling pretty burnt out. We were wondering what like the next steps were for us. I was managing a restaurant, Tom was managing a kitchen, but like we felt like it wasn't sort of personally fulfilling in the way that we wanted the rest of our career to be. Um, we ended up going to Indonesia for a month and traveling and eating a ton of food. And when we came back, we were like, we want to do a pop-up. And sort of similar to what we found here, people were very receptive to just trying it out. And the first pop-up we did, the first like real big pop-up we did was terrible. But people came back for the <laughs> second one, which was fucking awesome because we the first one had some. We learned a lot. It, there were some moments of clarity and genius. Well, and you got to fail to get just, great. You must fail. Totally. Oh, we fit, and we I failed mean, a lot. <laughs> I'm genuinely glad that we did. And I'm also grateful that we failed in these communities where people were like, that might not have hit on every note, but like, we're going to come back next time and see if they do it better. And we did. And it really like the sense of community that we felt through these pop-ups in Portland, Maine was like really powerful and really special to us. And we realized like the levels that you can connect with people if you sort of like experience your own identity through your food or hospitality and that's really when tom started like exploring his personal identity through his cooking up until that point it had been cooking like french food or italian food or like trying to get in the mind of his chef and figuring out what his chef would want which is a very important skill that like he had to learn and it's he's very good at that but that after going to indonesia Tom really started to like experiment with his own identity through his food. That's when we got our first jobs together at a restaurant where I was the general manager and Tom was the chef of sort of like a Southeast Asian noodle bar in Maine that we opened together and ran for a couple of years. And then we moved out to Portland, Oregon from there. Yeah. A little context. My mom is from, is was born in Indonesia. Yeah in Surabaya on, on Java. And so that's where my grandmother's family was from. They're Chinese from Indonesia. Um, so I hadn't, after all these years of cooking, I hadn't really looked at this really like formative part of my cultural background as something that belonged with my career. I just never put those together. And I still think of that, how odd that is and how like, whitewashed my mindset was at the time as to what was food to cook professionally and what was food that was 
in my personal life. And it was when we went to this trip to Indonesia that, like, literally like, getting off the plane and just having, like, you hear about people having these, like, aha moments. But, like, the smells, first the smells, like, for sure. And then, and then you eat the food. And I was like, I know this food. Like, I don't know how to make it, but I know it, the flavors of it. And I understand how they work because I've been eating this shit and just not realizing that I've been processing it. And now I have all of these years of experience doing other food, but I can apply that experience to what I don't know about this cuisine and sort of make something a little different. Um, it's sort of the benefit of like being naive is that you don't, you don't, you can't do the cliche things because you don't even know how to do the, the real thing. So it's almost like the, the nature of it by just trying to figure it out. Um, you end up with something that becomes unique just out of out of necessity, um, and that's what we started doing. Um, I think also it is really interesting that you never thought about this food professionally until that point, because like, although although you hadn't thought about it in that way, the food that your family ate like played such a big part in your life, like. Tom often talks about, like, the first time he took a girl on a date, he took them to this restaurant, Penang, in Chinatown, that's, like, Malaysian food. Or, for, like, for our wedding, his grandmother cooked her red chicken and gado gado for our rehearsal dinner. Like, these moments when his mom became a justice on the Supreme Court of Massachusetts, they're, like, serving Malaysian and Indonesian food at her celebrations. Like, all of these really important life milestones this food is present and his mom and his grandmother are like cooking this food and talking to him about this food and he's cooking it at home. But like the, it didn't make the leap to like your professional life until this. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a whole, we could talk for hours about, you know, food identity and cultural politics and like sort of the, the whitewashing of like third culture and being like the sun or just anyone being sons, daughters of, of immigrant families, but never having experienced the culture because my mom and her brothers in a lot of ways weren't like consciously trying to get away from it. But like, you know, they grew up in the West coast and they wanted to be like Supreme you know, court justices, like all their friends. They wanted to be Americans. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. My mom's, my mom's a boss. It's hard for me to like think of her in that way. Right. Because she's just my mom. But yeah, she, she, she was on her own path to finding out what, <laughs> her idea of being American was, and for her, it was school, lawyer, job, judge, and eventually, you know, very influential. But then also it circles back that as she reaches pinnacle, then she, suddenly she becomes this icon for Asian American women um, in that, in that field. So it's not to say that it didn't play a huge part in her life, but it's not something that was like drilled into me the way that some, you know, I have you know Asian American friends who have more of the stories of like, you know, bringing their like stinky foods to, to school and having to deal with that stigma for me is almost the opposite where like I had to force myself to identify culturally in my older years because my younger years were full of just not calling it like assimilation. There was, there was no like self-awareness of it. I just, I was brought up to be a white male and that's how I felt in school. And it wasn't until I got old enough to question my place in society and my place in my, my personal cultural identity. I mean, it's still something I struggle with. It's still something I think about constantly with my food, with my background, especially now that my grandmother, Oma, who the restaurant's named after passed away during COVID. 
she was really the cultural touchstone for my entire family. Um, and with her gone, it becomes, I feel like this weight of like trying to discover more and trying to find where I fit in this more. So that just doesn't get lost with her passing. Um, so traveling a lot as part of that, getting back to Indonesia and Singapore and Malaysia as often How often do you go? How often do you go? trying to still... Um, well, the pandemic put a pause on things for sure, but I was we, at least every year for the last six or seven years mm-hmm. we would travel. Um, I was able to go to Singapore and Korea and the Philippines and, um, you know, twice with some, with work I had to do. Um, we're actually going in about a month with, um, a bunch of our, our senior That's, staff I was members. just about we're to ask that. That's to, awesome. To Singapore. Yeah, we're going to Singapore with 13 people. Yeah, just to give them context about what we're doing. And and so instead of me telling you, like, this is where this comes from, this is the way I want it to taste, it's it's a hard thing to to teach in Oregon where no one has that. Very few people have a connection to the food, whether they've traveled or cooked it. It's hard to teach something so foreign to somebody when they don't have any context other than what you present them. So now giving this context to our chefs and some of our front of house managers is going to be amazing for carrying that over into what we do. And we chose Singapore, not Indonesia, because you can, A, you can get fantastic Indonesian food in Singapore. It's a little easier to travel with the group as like a first thing. And you can get amazing Malaysian food, not to mention amazing Singapore hawker food. There's Little India, Chinatown. I mean, the amount of stellar best hits in a tiny little island you can't, it's hard to find that anywhere else except maybe like penang malaysia but that's like that's malaysian yeah. food here in singapore you can get everything and it's world class from like three michelin star which we probably won't be going to to really what we're looking at is just all the hawkers doing incredible wonton me doing incredible you know um chicken rice or Charmy or whatever it is that we're looking for. I mean, they have it in uh, in droves, fishball soup. And It'll make everybody stuff. in your restaurant that much better, which is going to make the experience that much better yeah. for everybody because it's going to it. I believe and I, you know, I don't know fully, but I've seen it in action a little bit. It will make um, them more of an expert on the type of food that you serve. And it's going to be more about this food is great with Tom's and everybody else's spin on it. It's not only yours now. Everybody else is going to have a better, uh, wider breadth of knowledge from which to contribute. Yeah. So um, I think that's fantastic. We've taken a lot of time. And then we're going to go again oh, in cool. February, I think. With everyone else. So, yeah. yeah, well, maybe we can discuss that sometimes. It's a little thing. I know somebody who does stuff like that with 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 the, with the public. So um, that would be kind of fun to talk about. Um, so we don't have a lot more time. I, um, I wanted to hear, because I was just, I've been doing a lot of appreciation lately, and one of those things is to wake up every day and talk about the things you're thankful for. I, if you don't mind, and you can both decline to do this because I'm springing this on you, uh, I would love to hear you both talk about what about each other you're very thankful you're, uh, you have the privilege to be around every day. So, Mariah, can you talk about what you really love about Tom and what, what makes you continue yeah. to be in love with him? Yeah, I can, 
I don't know if I can say all of oh, it, some. but I can certainly say that one of my favorite things about Tom and one of the things that I think makes him like a very exciting partner in life and in business is that like Tom cannot help but be anything except himself all the time. And that is like this blessing and curse that Tom carries because Tom's volume is turned up. And I don't just mean like he's loud. I mean like he's big and he's loud and he's very passionate and he has a lot of ideas. And I think being around somebody who is like so purely themselves is like, it's very inspirational for me. It gives us, I think the, you know, GQ, when they wrote about Gatto, they said we have like a hippie-ish confidence and that felt very <laughs> true. Like, I feel like because Tom isn't able to be anything but himself, he carries this really wonderful combination of like naivety and confidence. And I think the proportions of that combination are what allow us to like have this really exciting business that's constantly evolving and feels really personally fulfilling for both of us. And also to have like a really cool little family that is very, very important to both of us as well. And I think like I get to watch our daughter grow up and she is so unabashedly herself because she sees her dad be like this every day. And I think for the purposes of this, that'll be the thing that I'm grateful for about Tom for the moment. But there are certainly I'm sure many. there are. All right, and then you had the advantage well, of thinking thanks, about this, love. Tom, so you're really under pressure. Yeah, I know. Well, I was going to say, let's not forget some of that good old-fashioned Boston Irish Catholic uh, self-doubt and guilt, but... That's a New England thing. Well, it's not just Boston, but... Um, yeah. What keeps me loving Mariah? I mean, I think when you have wrapped your life into someone else's life in the way that we have with our business, in our life, I mean, it's certainly not something that everyone can do. Um, what I love is her willingness to change with me in all these ways that we have started in this one way you talk about like our dirtbag years and these dreams that we've carried and we've changed so much together and i think what makes or breaks a couple or a or a partnership or a, or or you know a romantic entanglement is your ability to change with one another and to flex and give when it's necessary and i think when one of us needs to be pulled this way the other one kind of can push and when the other one needs to be pushed the other one can be there and i think she's just been like my one true like road dog and companion through all of the like ups and downs of the last how long have we 15 years that we've been together and watching her growth while she gives me space for my growth and then watching her capacity to love when we had our daughter when all of this other stuff was happening and her capacity to keep the, the, the livelihoods of our employees to, in her heart and to keep like our relationship in love and her family's love in her heart, but also like still find these like untapped fathoms of reserves of love and caring to give to our child 
and our dogs and like everyone that comes in contact with her. It's just infectious, especially to someone like me who had felt for such a long time that for various reasons in life, my heart was sort of turned off to these, to this emotional capacity and having Mariah in my life. And now because of Mariah, my daughter, I feel like my heart and my soul has been like turned back on to where I am now like receiving the flow of these emotions that I didn't think I had resources to get to anymore. And I think that because of Mariah and because of my daughter, I'm now finding them for the first time in a long time and able to enjoy parts of my life that I thought were turned off to, um, to me because of the way that I would chosen to live my life for a long time. So, um, I love you for, for all of that. Wow. That is that. Thank you both for sharing. I really appreciate that. And Tom, you just demonstrated in a few minutes exactly what Mariah had said about you. No one's gonna. No one's gonna hear this. Though, right? we, only, like, we only have sappy. six. We only have six listeners. Don't, don't worry about it. It's all set. <laughs> okay. Awesome. <laughs> now, a few will hear it, but I. You know what? I. Uh, now you need to tell me what is your. What is your deepest secret? Mine? <laughs> now it's time for you to oh, open up man. on your own podcast. Give me some juice about your life. I want something. You're, you sit here asking us to bear. Oh, I feel like I want. Well, you know, you know Court and I. How about what do you have for oh, breakfast? God. You know, that, you that goes right on the. That, goes, <laughs> that, that is a terrible uh, adjunct to when Gary asked me the last two restaurants, I, or last restaurant I went to in Portland, and I told, I told him um, it was Popeyes and then Annie's Donuts right in a row, because those were things well, I could bring back to. Dude, I was you, shooting back from the airport, and those were things. Now I'm going to tell. You have now my I'm gonna, heart. Well, I'm. I would like some Popeyes yeah, and some Yeah, no, Andy's it's not. I f- and I, I have to say, yeah. I started when I spoke to Mariah yesterday. I humbly said, it's insane that I haven't been to your restaurant yet. But I said, the only excuse I have, it's not a good one, is that I do live in Manzanita. So I'm not going out in Portland all the time. And yeah. I surely didn't do much during the pandemic. And I eat a lot at yeah. Zupan's and, you know, grab a lot of my stuff and go. Mm. So, um uh, so there's that, but I guess I have to, you know, I have to come clean on what I had for breakfast, but it's not wholly bad. It is bad, but it's, I had, um, a bowl, a bowl or two of honey nut Cheerios with, but with local, beautiful, delicious, fresh peaches over it. So I had Cheerios. There you go. Berries, so All right. High, high five. five. Yeah. East coast thing to do, but not honey yeah. nut, just the regular Cheerios. Honey, honey nut. nut. We had honey oh, there you go. Honey nut. Yeah. Well, oh, so that yeah. ended honey up nut. being a yeah. very pleasant, pleasant <laughs> experience. For me. I'm not even lying. That's exactly <laughs> what I had. Oat milk. Oat mi- yeah. Well, I I just had. Oat milk. I had. I, I had. Uh, yeah. You know, whole milk. Um, cow's milk. But um, yeah, no. I think the more people ask me those questions, the less they're going to want to listen to this podcast. Except, I'm <laughs> one who believes. That I think having lived in Portland, there's, and Gary will tell you the same thing, Gary Okazaki, that a lot of the stuff that is everywhere gets a short shrift. For instance, you know, I found out over Mm -hmm. time, I have a little thing for the sausage biscuit at McDonald's. I found out a lot of people have that. I'm not the only one. In fact, don't get me started on McDonald's. I love McDonald's. The best McDonald's in the world is in Hollywood. Yep. Hollywood District. Oh, this Hollywood. Cesar Chavez. Why is Bet. it better? There, you Why is find it better? a better one. It's, I don't know. So it's like you're eating at a different restaurant. 
it's try it is so much better. Bill oh, Oakley, if you're listening, it's owned I know by he Oakley. doesn't agree with me. Bill's been on the podcast, so very good. He thinks the one on Powell's the best. He's wrong. It's Hollywood, but um, anyway, Bill, I'm going to say the one in Seaside, Oregon, yes, is the best because it's the only one that's close to me that I can generally go to. <laughs> Two things. Two things before we before we end. A. Do we open a seafood restaurant on the coast? Oh, and if you will serve lobster B, rolls, I will find financing for it. If you'll no problem. It's only thirty dollars a pound right now. Well, yeah, but the, Maine, the so pla- there's a place that's in roll. Seaside and Astoria that's charging forty five bucks for a lobster roll, which I like. I just said I'm out. That's what they're costing in Maine right now. Forty five for New England. That's there. and one hundred twenty for for crab legs. For crab, uh, king crab, king that's crab, king that's crab. insane. Yeah, that's, that's what I insane. thought. Well, while we're on your show, you can cut this out if you want, but just thought I'd say because uh, we were talking about all this stuff about me, and there's so much stuff going on in the world. Few things. Fuck caviar. Fuck Donald Trump, and um, stop trying to make choices for women's bodies. I we we try try to stay not Period. political on this, but I, I'm not going to disagree with you on all of that. So I'm glad you said it. I just uh, you know uh, we we want a lot of people to listen to this, and uh, you know I found over time I'm pretty strongly political. But some of my best friends, I don't know if they're Trump supporters. That I can't say, but they're Republican, and um, yeah, okay. you can, be, you can Republican, be Republican. Just be a good Republican, like a, with a heart, with a soul, sure. and. Um, and so, yeah, and um, well, I appreciate you saying that. One, one statement. We're not going to cut that it's out. Like you can be a Yankees fan, but like, pardon you know, me. It's like you can be a Yankees fan, but no. Like, well, I was just about to go there with you, so I'm a an <laughs> avid New York Mets fan. As a matter of fact, the reason I uh, in the beginning I had to pause the Mets playing the Pirates right now so it, w- it wasn't distracting to me mm-hmm. um, but of course I'm just get, are you a Red Sox fan pardon me yes. well yes Mariah though being the real the, the baseball nerd when I met her neither of us watch sports as much as we might want to well but being a baseball fan on the west coast is great because the games maybe not for you but for me they start at four o'clock and they're over at seven you still got your sunset to enjoy and all that stuff but um well, we have widely different yeah. jobs. No, 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 no. We have, <laughs> we have. Is this a job that I have? What I do? I don't. If people say that, and I'm like, I, like I don't know. It's seven? kind of a gig. Why are you watching the sunset. So Sweet. no, I don't have actual hours. Yeah. I just have weeks and days. So, um, but I will sometime. Well, so we'll finish this. I'm assuming that some people have already left. We're over an hour. But for those who want to hear a little bonus segment. Do you remember where you were? Can you describe where you were when that ball went through Buckner's legs? Uh, where yeah. I was? Oh, no. you're too young for this. How old you're too was young I? for this. Yeah, I, was, I think I was three. Was that 84? What year was that? No, had to be, See, no. Look at me failing. If her, good no, thing you don't have any listeners no. in Boston. I'm not going to get sacrificed that, for but this. But I'm sure so. we both remember where we were when the Red Sox won the World Series. When they yeah, that was irrelevant. Those. However, I always have a story. <laughs> so <laughs> we're the spoiled generation. That yeah, got to see, like you didn't I live through the, the pain. I saw the Bruins, the Celtics, and the Sox all win in like you know, and and the Patriots all win. In the, like, I had when year. I was eleven. So this so. is aging me. I had the Mets 
where I went to the Game 5 of the World Series. I was 11 years old. The Jets won. We went to the championship. We had season tickets to the Jets. And the Knicks won all in that one year. And New York hasn't been... You discount the Yankees. No. But, um, but I will say this. Um, uh, so as I went to school with Terry Francona, and he, I watched him at the University, University of Arizona Crazy. bat over 400 uh, for the whole season. Yeah. When I went to every yeah, when I went to every game, so I was in a class with him, but I didn't know him. I'd like to say that I conversed Mm -hmm. with him, but um, anyway, it was cool that I got to see his college career, which was way better than his major league baseball career. He had to wait to become a manager to become a force in major league baseball. So, um, but he did. He did, and he's. uh, I, I you know I always wish him well. I always thought he was a pretty cool guy as manager he was humble and yeah. you could see the players respected him and um yeah there's all sorts of good things going on there so i've never i used to actually this goes way back there was a time when i somehow liked carl yastrzemski and the red sox uh not more than the mm-hmm. mets but i somehow found some kind of dual fanship thing going on mm-hmm. but that ended and then later on in business you're going to hate me for this but i'll just I, we're just being honest here i did some media buying in all over the northeast and the guys in boston were the biggest pricks ever um oh we don't need you for that yeah. we love boston we no love argument. being big yeah. pricks yeah. that's our whole thing yeah they were just like i there was one time i had a client who had already purchased the um, the uh, package for the Red Sox on radio, which included seats. So they were buying it to get the seats. And then they hired me to be their consultant. And I said, if you want seats, you should buy seats. It'll be a lot cheaper than buying this radio package on, what is it? What's the station? EEI? Mm-hmm. Maybe? I can't remember. So my job was to consult with them and tell them what was best for them. So I said, I would dump this package. It was like three days before spring training. And um, Mm -hmm. this guy on that radio station just told me, he goes, I'm going to fucking get you and you're done. And and he tried every way he could to sabotage me. And I understand why he did what he did. But I had to do what was best for my clients. It was like, don't spend a, you know, $600 cost per point in radio to get seats that you can buy Uh at the time for $45. So... I would say I, that resonates with me. And I, like moving to the West Coast, though, has like has softened a, a, some of my more, you know, rougher edges for sure. And um, also being a parent, and but I think I, it still comes back to like when I meet people out here that I'll, I start to really connect with. I'm like, oh, this, I really, you know, this person's great. But they, I always find out they're from they're from New England. They're from like Jersey or Connecticut or New Hampshire. There's a certain um, and I think it's the people who've left New England that kind of come out here. Like you know, all my favorite people. No, no offense to all the people I love from the West Coast, but like all my favorite people from the West Coast are from the East Coast. Yeah, you, Coast maybe we want to cut that out. You don't want to piss uh, all those West Coast people out. But there is a certain there's a certain <laughs> sarcasm that goes with the East Coast. There's a certain. Um, understanding of just being saying what you think people don't do that necessarily in directness and so um yeah yeah no i found that i moved to arizona once man and i just could not most of the people from were from the midwest there and i just couldn't relate at all at the time i was i was a lot younger it's communication it's not the 
it's not the people. It's like how they com- it's how people right. communicate. And it took me a long time to figure out how I can communicate properly with in this Oregon. It's not like you know, I don't know. It's it. Uh, it took me a little yeah. while to figure it out. And but I, have, I think also you know, when I moved to Phoenix, I was it was a real rough from the get go because I was working at a company. We went out to lunch, and everybody started eating their French fries with knives and forks. And I looked at that, and I'm like, "What oh, the fuck boy, is this?" <laughs> or like when someone like he's eating there, you see people even out here. Oh my god, with for- with a knife and fork. I got I got to train. I got to teach my daughter because it it dawned on us not too long ago that we we're like, "Holy shit, our daughter's not from right. the East Coast." Our daughter's a well. Then let her kid. have it. Let her. So we got to make sure she'll she's drive doing. a little slower. <laughs> she'll do all the. You know, she'll be a little more careful. Um, so, yeah. I just wondered if fold, learn how to fold your pizza. Right. You know what I mean. That's important to me. Yeah. No. There's. There's yeah. also. I. Okay. You know. There's two things I miss. I say this to this day, and I don't miss. I don't look back after. I moved here in 2005. I. I don't really with, with the food it's hard for me to say i miss any food living out here right that's tough but i do miss my white clam mm-hmm. pizzas and my new haven pizza and i do have them i i do have tell them me, delivered out here once in a while from modern tell me you've been to demos demos uh no i have not a demos a pizza demos okay, a pizza so, wait a minute demos plug. a pizza it's not yeah. a pizza yes sorry so l- this is a shameless plug because Doug's like one of my close friends. But, uh, and you know, I would say when I moved out here, pizza jerk is probably my favorite pie. I mean, there's so much good right. pizza here, right? I'm not going to do anyone. Everyone does amazing pizza. There's so much good fucking pizza in Portland. It's crazy. Doug at Demos is just go, just go eat it. He's doing a white clam pie. Does he? He doesn't. Well, His dough is fucking amazing. Important question. Key question. Most important me. question in this podcast today. Does he put shells on the white clam pizza? Okay, good. That's no. all that matters because every. You, I can't put tell you shells? how many. Even like Brian clam Spangler, shells? I've he puts shells on when he does. No, and then so yeah. I've talked to a few pizza pe- people who own pizza restaurants about white clam pizzas. Oh. We can't do that because it doesn't sell very well. Well, of course not. It's too fucking crunchy. You put the you put the shells on the pizzas. Did you say that? Was that your <laughs> line yesterday, Mariah? I think that was your line yesterday, right? What? The crunchy was was I? I was talking to somebody about the shells. On, oh, I know. No, we're my classmates. We do a little Zoom call with my seventh grade classmates. So that was that. No, you don't. So. Um, but listen, go to. I've go been to told Demos. that before. New Haven style so should I go to like Should I go to Demos before I go to Gatto Gatto? I mean, you, I I got to pick and choose yes, my opportunities. Absolutely, one hundred percent. So, so 100%. Um, all right, well, great. But I, it's no wonder that white clam pizzas don't catch on here when they put shells on them. The two things yeah, you got to spend the time taking these little teeny Manila clams out of the shells one by one. Yeah, you know the. The one thing you get, though, and from a culinary standpoint, the one only the only thing I could say I under, where I can understand that is when you ro- if you're doing it right and you roast it with fire oven, you're gonna get the juices from that clam is gonna get on the pizza. And the well, caramel. wait a minute. Oh, if I, you that's the only thing I could see. But being if a you make the pizza the fresh, by fresh, fresh, t- fresh, fresh, by t- tipping that clam over and pulling it out first for your sure. customer and putting it on the pizza, that clam flavor is gonna bake into the into the crust or the cheese or something that true i'm just trying to make an argument for like maybe why you do it other mm-hmm. than aesthetics there may be I, well argument. i you know and i'm not going to argue with you know people like uh 
uh, Kathy at Nostrana or Brian. They, what they do is great. But still, yeah. I, when it comes to White Clam right. Pizza, I think it can be done better. And I've told him. I've been direct I enough agree. as an East Coaster to tell him that. So anyway... Well, I would go check it out. I'll tell anyone that listen, go check that place out. It's all right. Well, listen, I'm they're number one on my I'm list. I'm sorry right we just lost Mariah somehow, but she had to go. We did. That's okay. I gotta, I gotta go. Yeah, too. man. I'm so sorry so. for keeping you this long, but it, but that's that no, is a um, that is an indication of how nice and fun this was because if it wasn't, we would have been out of here in 45 minutes to an hour. It's like, so I really enjoyed getting to know of you, course. and that's the purpose of this is to getting to know great folks like you so thank you so much for oh, for being so open thanks for thinking of us sorry for sorry oh for no the rambling. rambling is my favorite part that's the part people write me about and say you ramble too much and i found one this morning where people <laughs> say your rambling is great it leads to better conversations so that's fantastic but no thank you both for being so open you know you you wore your thank hearts you. on your sleeves i asked you to and you did so thank you and uh I'll uh, see you soon. I promise. It won't be until after October because I'm going to be away. But um, all right, we'll do or I'll just stop in. Do we need, by the way, do we need? Don't sneak in. I hate, don't sneak in. All right, so that, and do people need reservations or what's the deal? You got to, you got to give me the, uh, the, where do we? You're going to need a reservation. Gato, Gato PDX, right? And same thing on Instagram. Is that all the good stuff that people need to know? Gotta got a PDX. Yeah, it's on Instagram. Uh, you can email info at gotta got a PDX. You can go on Resi and find a reservation on Resi. Um, okay, and Oma's not the same situation. Yeah, you can just go into Oma's. You can go in. I mean, I yeah. There's a lot more space for walk-ins, but reservations still. Um, it gets okay. Busy, cool. So, you know. All right. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. We'll, yeah, we'll heart, and we can also meet outside the you. restaurant too. It would be kind of fun because you're going to be busy okay. when you're there. All right, man. Thanks. We did meet outside yeah, sure. the restaurant. We'll go to Demos. All right. Yeah, let, uh, that's the deal. We'll go to Demos, and I will make sure I'm one. Okay. I'm one who is gets pissed off when people say they're going to do shit and never follow up on it. So um, let's I, do it. We'll bring Gary and we'll there go you have go. a party. That's that's the deal. All right. Thank you there very you much. Have a have a good right. uh, Wednesday. Take it easy. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right